Well, if you would go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read about half of this chapter, but we're only going to really be focusing on two verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 12 and read to the end of the chapter. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So in this passage, Paul is addressing one of the major sins in the Corinthian church, and that is sexual immorality. And it is hard to know what might have been the cause of such widespread immorality in the church. Uh, Corinth was notorious for being an immoral city, so it may have just been that this is kind of an overflow of being in that culture, being saved out of that culture that some of these sins continued. Or maybe there was some influence of Gnosticism, which Gnostics believed that the body was evil and would not allow any physical pleasures. That was some Gnostics. But on the other side, you go to the exact opposite extreme. Some Gnostics would actually hold to the fact they still believe that the body was evil, but that there was this distinction between the body and the spirit, and since the body was going to be destroyed anyway, it didn't really matter what happened with the body because it's the spirit that's going to live on. And so we don't know what might have been the cause here, but maybe some of those influences uh, was causing some of this immorality. But whatever the cause was, it led to sin of such an extent that professing believers were actually indulging in sexual immorality because Paul is addressing this to the church. Well, one thing is clear from Scripture. There is an inseparable bond between the spiritual life of the Christian and the actions of the Christian. You cannot separate your spiritual life from your physical life. What you do in the flesh is who you are. You may have heard um, some celebrities or sports stars when they've been caught in some transgression, then they have to come forward and make a public apology. And usually it goes something like this. 
the actions that I display don't truly represent who I am. That's not who I really am. They try and distance themselves. The actions that I did, that's not really who I am. That's not what I stand for. Well, the Bible would say, no, that is who you really are. The actions that we do represent what's in our heart and represent who we really are. James touches on this in several places. Here's one example. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, if you hear the word and even profess the word, but don't practice the word, then you're deluded. That's, that's what he's saying here. Another, just a few verses down, James 1.26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So if you think you're religious, if you think that you're spiritually well, but you have unbridled sin in your life, you're deceived. And then a final one here from James, uh, James 2.26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So where there is no fruit, that would be the works, there is no life, that would be the faith. See, the two go together. Faith and works go together, and so does spiritual life and spiritual fruit. Well, when a person becomes a Christian, they become a new creation, God begins to work through them to change them. They are given new desires. They have new life to be able to fight against sin. No longer are they characterized by fleshly indulgences, but rather by self-control and by other fruits of the Spirit. In other words, the spiritual life that God gives results in spiritual fruit being manifested in the life of a Christian. So can you tell that someone is a Christian just by looking at them? And by looking at them, I'm talking about as in just like a picture of them. And the answer to that is probably not. You can't just look at someone and automatically make a distinction. They're lost, they're saved. But can you tell if someone is a Christian by looking at their life? And to that, we would say yes. The Bible says so. Matthew 7, 17, every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And then verse 20 of that same chapter, so then you will know them by their fruits. So you can identify a believer by the fruit that's coming forth from their life. Well, what I want to do in this time is to look at the way in which Paul confronts the immorality here in Corinth. And as we've already seen, the context was involving immorality. But the way that Paul addresses this actually confronts not just immorality, but all sin in general. And that's what I want to focus on this morning and keep that in mind for us as we're looking at this. This applies to all of us in every area of our life. We all have areas in our life that we need our minds renewed in to fight against sin, to fight against the flesh. And we're going to be looking at three phrases found in verses 19 and 20. And really, it's just the very end of verse 19 there. Um, In the New American Standard, um, 
they, they include this last phrase about that you are not your own. They include that as a question with the, the previous sentence. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? I believe the ESV actually puts a question mark after um, or right before that sentence. So it's the beginning of a new thought here. You are not your own. And then verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, Therefore, glorify God in your body. So I want to just consider those three things. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And again, I'm applying this not just to immorality. I'm applying this to every area of our life. So the first one, the end of verse 19 there, you are not your own. Now this flies in the face of the rebellious heart of the unbeliever. The unbeliever wants to be free of any outward constraint. I will be my own boss. I'm going to call the shots. That was one of the temptations that the serpent presented to Eve there in the Garden of Eden. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. Essentially, what the serpent was saying is you will no longer have to depend on God for moral guidance you will have knowledge and be able to make your own decisions for your life. That's essentially what that temptation was about. No longer do you need to rely on God. You can make up your own decision. You can choose the path for your life. Ironically, the very first decision that Eve made was completely contrary to the word of God. The very first choice that a person made outside of God was not like, well, that's pretty much in line with what God says, and then down the road it started getting off the tracks. No, right away, the very first decision is completely contrary to what God said. So the lost person proclaims their own independence. I'm free. I'm a slave to no one. And it reminded me of a, a song, a secular song There's a, in the court. The title of the song is It's My Life, and that kind of gives you a clue as to where they're going with the song. But here's the words to the chorus. It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. My heart is like an open highway. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. That's essentially, that's the chorus of the unbeliever. They want to live their own life. And he actually quotes there that line from Frank Sinatra, uh, I did it my way. You know, famous song, but what's that saying? I did it my way. I didn't do it God's way. I did it my way. Well, what does Paul say? You are not your own. The reality is no one is truly independent and free. Everyone is a slave. Even the proud, quote-unquote, independent person who claims their own freedom is a slave. Jesus said this in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. You really think you're free, but in reality you're enslaved to sin. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You think you're free, but in reality, you're doing the will of Satan. He is your master. 
You're choosing not to follow Christ, but in reality you're enslaved to sin and enslaved to Satan to do his will. Well, what is Paul saying when he says you are not your own? One of the things is he's saying you belong to another. Think about that. Who do you belong to? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, you belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.23, you belong to Christ. What a glorious thought. You belong. Just think about that, that you belong. Someone wants you. Someone cares for you. And not just someone. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you. He cares for you. You belong to him. In John 18, again, this is uh, Jesus, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Think about that. This security for the Christian belonging to Christ. He's, you've been given to him. You belong to him. There is security in that. He has lost not one. This idea of belonging to God was so common in the New Testament that the writers oftentimes referred to themselves as slaves or servants of God. Here's some examples. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, that's in Romans. And then Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus in Philippians there. And then Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Christ Jesus. You don't hear any of them introducing themselves, Peter, the independent free thinker, or Paul the apostle, I am my own person in answer to no one. That's completely foreign to any of the writers of the New Testament. It's completely foreign to any Christian. Instead, what you have is Paul, when he's bound for Rome, they're on the ship and it's about to go under. He says this, For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me. So think of that. He's he's not saying... The God that belongs to me, like I've chosen this God and he belongs to me. You serve your God, this is the God I serve, he belongs to me. He says just the opposite, the God to whom I belong to him. What a thought that he belongs to God. An error that can creep in even as Christians if we're not careful is that God has delivered us from bondage to sin but that we are free and independent to do whatever we want as a Christian. It's very much like the idea of Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. Think about someone who desires to be married. They desire to belong to someone. But then once they're married, if they were to live as though they were still single, something wouldn't seem right there. You would think, you know, if they're just living independently, I, you know, I'm married, but I want to be free. I want to be independent. You would think that's a mockery of what marriage is supposed to be. That's an insult to your spouse to want to be free and independent of your spouse. Marriage is joining two together. Well, what about us towards God? Do we make a mockery of his lordship in our life? Do we practically deny his authority over us? I'm free. I can do whatever my heart desires. 
our attitude should be like that of Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. A complete surrender of our will to what he wants for our life. Not, not holding on to what we want as though we have to have it, but Lord, your will is what I want. Well, how does belonging to another help us to fight against sin? Because that's kind of the whole idea here is we're going to fight against sin. So how does this thought about belonging to another help us? Well, the first is it should be a warning, a caution to us. You belong to Christ and you will give an account to him for what you do. It's the accountability of knowing that your master, your Lord, knows everything, every thought, every word, every attitude, every glance, everything. He knows everything about us. You see this idea in the parable of the talents. If you remember, the master called his slaves to him and was going to go on a journey, and he entrusted various talents to them, and then he left. And when he came back, he called them to himself for them to give account of what they did with those talents. So there was accountability there. And you see that the one who did well was blessed, and the one who didn't do well was rejected. And so there is, there is that, that very idea there. God has given us things, and we are, we're held accountable to him. He knows. He knows what we're doing. And so that should be a warning. It's a good and right warning for us to consider. We will give account to the Lord for our lives. But second, and I think more importantly, our belonging to Christ results in our conformity to Christ. So it's not just about avoiding sin so we won't get caught. It's about avoiding sin so that we might be like Christ Galatians 5.24 says this, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul in this verse speaks of it as a certainty, as something that has already taken place. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have put to death fleshly passions and desires. And that, that's a reality that Paul is speaking of. We belong to Christ. Live in that reality. That means that he is shaping and molding us to be like him. It should give us a renewed focus and renewed desire to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. And belonging to Christ doesn't just change our outward actions. It changes our hearts, too. Uh, I was thinking of this verse in Ephesians 6 where Paul is addressing, you know, he addresses children, he addresses husbands and wives, and then he addresses slaves. And in verse 6 says this, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And, of course, that's referring to literal masters in this life. With fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, in other words, not just outwardly obeying them, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. 
So you see that he's exhorting them not just to do the outward action of obedience, but let it come from the heart. And that's what happens when we recognize that our life is not our own, is that we, we in humility, submit ourselves to Christ, and he begins to work through us, not just that our outward actions are right, but that our heart attitudes are changed, and we desire the things that are pleasing to him. Well, secondly, then, let's move on into verse 20, if we're back here in 1 Corinthians. says, For you have been bought with a price. So this answers the question, why are you not your own? Because he just finished saying, you are not your own. Why are you not your own? Because you have been bought with a price. Well, what was the price? The price was Christ's own life being sacrificed for us. This was no small purchase. This was a purchase of a cost of infinite value. In Acts 20, Paul um, there is exhorting the Ephesians, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. And another verse on this, Revelation 5. Andy spoke out of this passage a few weeks ago. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So here's that same idea. The, the church, the brethren, the people of God have been purchased with the blood of, of Christ. Well, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to look at this next example here. Again, rather familiar verse, but I think it's worth making note of. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, 17 and 18, says in verse 17, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So notice in verse 17, there's a command in exhortation to conduct ourselves in fear. There he says, conduct yourselves in fear during your stay, your time, of your stay on earth. I interpret that to mean basically walk in obedience in the fear of the Lord. But then notice the why. Verse 18, knowing that. So in other words, he's saying knowing that there's some reality here that's causing you to walk in fear. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but rather with the precious blood, a lamb unblemished. So the great price that was paid for your redemption is a cause for submission and obedience to Christ. He gave all to save you. We should give all to follow and obey him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 
um, Paul says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Another version says constrains us. Think about that. The love of Christ controls or constrains us. But then continuing on, it says the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, that is Christ, died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's it right there. He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. That's the the result of this love, this great price that he paid for us, is that we, in turn, live our lives for him, not for ourselves, not for the flesh any longer, but for him. A purchase this great and this costly demands our full and complete submission. I thought of that uh, line from the song we sing. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And actually, I I hadn't, hadn't seen this before until we were just singing it earlier. That song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Um, there, that verse where he says, see the price of our redemption. That's it right there. See the price, the cost that it is. What should that do for us when we see the great sacrifice? It should move us. It should motivate us to be like Christ, to walk in submission to him. Well, moving on then in verse 20. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Notice the conclusion to all this is not, therefore, stop your immorality. It's not even, therefore, stop doing the things that are contrary to the word of God. Paul's conclusion to this is not a negative command, don't do this, but rather a positive command, glorify God in your body. This is like what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, There in Matthew 5, where he said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus didn't just give the negative command, don't commit adultery. He addressed the heart where the adulterous thoughts would begin. He essentially was saying, glorify God in your thought life. If God is on the throne in your thought life, then you're not going to be committing outward adultery. But first, it begins in the heart. This is a much higher um, command than just avoiding the evil action. And what Paul is doing here is he is saying it's not just enough to avoid immorality. In light of these truths, we need to seek to glorify God in our lives Instead of this physical body being given over to sin and fleshly passions, we should seek um, to glorify him with our bodies. Seek to glorify God with our bodies. This is a tall command. It's not just about avoiding things that are explicitly forbidden, but rather it's about asking, does this glorify God? That's a much different focus. You've probably 
thought it yourself or heard others, it's kind of like this mentality of how close can I get to the line and be okay, as opposed to, wait, is this even pleasing to the Lord? Does this glorify God? What area of our life does this not cover? Our thoughts, our words, what we look at, what we listen to, our attitudes, our actions, how we spend our alone time, how we spend our leisure time, how we treat our spouse when we're tired, how we respond when there's a lot of stress and pressure upon us. Can we say that we're seeking to glorify God in all of these situations? Well, notice also that Paul here in verse 20 specifically points to glorifying God in our body. This body that is the battleground of so many fleshly temptations and indulgences. This body that will one day perish and return to dust. This body that is corrupted by the effects of sin. I mean, it would seem to make sense if Paul said glorify God in your heart because he's given us a new heart. And our inner man, our heart is eternal. It makes sense to glorify God in our heart, but our body? Our body is temporal. Our body is mortal. We still struggle with fleshly desires in our body. And we will be given, someday we will be given new glorified bodies. But yet we are told to set apart, to sanctify this body that we have now. Use it for the glory of God. Instead of this being a temple for fleshly desire, let this be a temple of holy sacrifice to God. Use this body for his glory. What, what a radical thought to think about that. God can receive glory through our body. God can take the very place where Satan ruled and reigned and make it a temple for his dwelling. And you see that there earlier in verse 19, know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The very place where Satan ruled and reigned is now the place where God dwells. He can take the place where Satan rules and reigns and make it a holy temple. Well, you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. May the Lord help us to take these things to heart and to think about them when temptations come into our life to recognize, wait a second, this is not just me in this situation. I belong to the Lord. What would he have me to do? Lord, give me your desires in this situation. Remember the great price that he paid for your redemption, for your salvation. Think of that. And let that motivate you, move you towards obedience to him. And then finally, glorifying God with our body. Seek in every area of our life that we would be glorifying God. So may the Lord help us in this. Why don't we close in prayer here. Father, we confess our own weakness. Lord, we are so prone to sin, to temptation, to give in in areas in our life, Lord. We pray for help, Lord, that we would be ones who glorify you in our body, Lord, in our life. Lord, help us not just to have 
kind of our the holy, sanctified, religious parts of our life that are given to you and then the others that are out of control. Lord, we want every area of our life to be in complete submission to you. So please help us in this. Lord, thank you so much for the great sacrifice that you made for us to purchase our salvation. Lord, we pray that we would be able to walk in reality of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.